This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey there. Before we start the show, I just want to take a moment to talk about one of the most important pieces of fishing gear out there, and that is optics. Whether it's a cloudy day and you're looking for hatching bugs and sipping fish on a river, or you're in the salt on a bright sunny day looking for bait or that tailing bonefish, Polarized sunglasses are a must, not only for locating fish and making you more successful on the water, but also just in general for eye health. That's why I trust and always bring a pair of Torrige sunglasses on all my fishing trips. Thankfully, here at Tide Chasers, we would like to announce our partnership with Torrige Eyewear to offer polarized glasses of superior quality that won't break the budget. With many styles and colors, these shades will keep the glare down in any condition and help you catch more fish. They're corrosion and scratch resistant, and come with a lifetime warranty, so you never have to worry about them falling overboard or breaking them. For all of our listeners, Torish offers a 20% discount by using the code TIDECHASERS, with a capital T and no spaces, at checkout. So pick up a pair today, get on the water, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back everyone to another episode of TIDECHASERS Podcast, where we try to bring something or someone new. To the show each week. Uh, we do apologize. We weren't here last week for the July. All of us were either fishing, vacationing, or just sitting at home being big bums. But uh, we are back for another week. So here we go. As always, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tai Chi's Podcast. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe to the podcast also. Uh, this week, I am joined by everyone's favorite fly guy besides myself, Bob. How you What's doing out there? there? It's, doing been, it's been a while we did one together. It's been a long time. I've been busy fishing, living life. Just got back from Florida with the Redfish Massacre. Uh, I don't want to be here, but here I am. Well, yeah. I want to be doing this podcast, but I don't want to be back in Connecticut. That's what I'm trying to say. I know. I told you, like I said earlier, you need you need to set up a whole day of decompression before you actually go back to work. You don't get off the plane and go straight to work. That's horrible. That's, that's life. Right to work. All right. Well, this week we have uh, on the show one of Bobby's fellow writers over there at Flylord Magazine. So uh, I'm actually going to pass it off to Bobby, let you introduce your guest. Yeah. So it's one of our favorite people to have on the show because uh, not only is he a great fisherman, but he's a foodie. 
uh, culinary master, uh, a, a photographer on the side, I believe. Uh, he's a writer of Flavor on the Fly for Fly Lords Magazine. Uh, and he's just a good friend. So, Mr. Kirk Marks, how are you? Good, man. Good to be here with you guys. Well, we really appreciate you having you on. Um, I think you've listened to these before. So um, as you probably know, we usually start off with a little bit of background about our guests, about how you got to where you are today, how you started fishing, um, where are you even located? Because I know you're on a little island called Kent Island, which we'll talk yeah. about probably. So uh, give us the backstory. Yeah, man. So uh, I've been fishing for pretty much as long as I can remember. My dad uh, fished when I was young and he was actually like a bass tournament guy back in the day. So, um, you know, I grew up on Kent Island, Maryland, which is a little island nestled in the like mid to upper region of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so, we, you know, my dad would take me out going for speckled sea trout, um, white perch, rockfish, all that kind of stuff as, when I was a kid, um, mainly doing, you know, spin tackle and like bait fishing and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, as I've gotten older, I, you know, I got the artificial bug and was doing spin cast for all that stuff and then eventually got the fly bug. So now I'm just kind of doing it all. You know, I'm not a purist in any form. I, uh, I like bait fishing and I like spin fishing. I like fly fishing. Just being out there on the water is what it's all about. Now Kent Island, right? I, from what I've read, it's it's a real small kind of like waterman's uh like town, right? Like there's like a lot of commercial crabbers and stuff like that. It's not really big like 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 industrial commercial like you know like where people live. It's more like like watermen and commercial families and stuff like that, right? Kent. Well, I would agree with you if it was uh you know fifty or. 60 70 years ago mm -hmm. um you know that's the roots of it and there still is a lot of that going on but unfortunately uh it has been you know it's been developed a lot and now there's a lot of um you know residential areas there's a lot of you know just like shops and uh, even like big retail i mean we got a, we just got a target on the island this year so uh you know it's it's pumping along just like the rest of the country but uh it does have that you know that waterman feel and you can't avoid the the waterman i mean the island's only like two or three miles wide at its widest point so it's it's omnipresent here cool. is it is it touristy i mean do you have like a main street and people come on vacation on kent island or they usually keep going to assateague or shikateague or <laughs> i don't even know if i said those right but those are the two places in maryland that i know yeah so i mean those are yeah assateague um is a, a good spot ocean city is a big one Shingoteek is um, mainly in, in Virginia, but we do have like a little bit of it in Maryland, I believe. But anyway, yeah, most people pass on by and go to those spots. So it gets kind of congested in the summertime because this is the one travel corridor to get to those locations. But there is a little bit of a tourist community here. Um, we have a spot called Kent Narrows, which is basically what separates Kent Island from the main eastern shore. There's this little strip of water called Kent Narrows and there's a lot of flow there and it's a, it's a pretty good fishing spot but um you know there's a lot of waterfront restaurants and hotels and shops and you know, it's got that whole kind of touristy vibe so people definitely vacation there and then there is downtown Stevensville which I hardly ever go to but there's a lot of significance um in the history there it's actually one of the first settlements in the whole Chesapeake Bay and I think I might be underserving it might be one of the first settlements in general in this area um 
but yeah, there's a lot of good history and it's a, it's a cool spot. I just pulled up a map and you are really high up there in terms of the Chesapeake Bay. Is that brackish water? Or is it still all salt all the way up there? It's definitely brackish. Yep. And depending on the rain, um, it'll be more fresh or more salty. So sometimes if we get like a droughty summer, then the reds will push up all the way up there. Um, there's normally red fish around, but on a drought year, there'll be enough around that you can reliably go out and target them. Gotcha. So you got all the fresh, best of best, best of both worlds, I guess. So you have the smallies and the large mouth mixed in with the speckled trout and the reds all basically surrounding you. We have a bunch of large mouth um, around me, you know, the Chop Tank, Nanticoke River. Um, you go far enough up the Chester, you can find them. But we don't have any small mouth on the eastern shore. Um, so we got to go to the western shore of those colder mountain rivers for that. But yeah, it is a pretty cool, diverse area. I mean, and it's cool how it changes from year to year with the climate or, you know, whatever's going on temperature and precipitation wise. Do you get any uh, tarpon up that far? Nope. No tarpon. Not I mean, so we're I mean, we know not we know not to speak of that secret. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just shut all that right. down real quick. No tarpon. We won't talk about it. No, no we won't talk about it. Um. All right. So, but before we get into this fishing stuff, I do want to talk about your. We'll call it your real job, which is you're an environmental hydrogeologist, mixing water with rocks. You want to tell us a little bit about that? What do you do on a day to day basis? Well, I guess when you're not fishing. You nailed it with that description, man. Most people are like, geology, that's like maps, right? It's like, no, that's geography. Uh, but yeah, so I basically work, I do like scientific research um, about groundwater resources in my region. So I conduct studies, you know, in partnership with a lot of other organizations and individuals that um, we're basically concerned with the quality and the quantity of our groundwater in our various aquifers that we use for both you know, agricultural uses and drinking water. Um, just keeping tabs on that because with the growing population, you know, groundwater can be used a lot faster than it can be recharged. At least that's true in the coastal plain region. So just, you know, having, a, having our eyes on that so we don't get too far ahead of ourselves in terms of our water resources. So it's mostly quantity, not quality. So you're not checking for micro presence or any of that? Quantity and quality. Yep. So in the coastal plain region um, of Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, all that, there's a lot of naturally occurring arsenic. Um, there's some polonium, which is radioactive. I mean, there's all kinds of certain things you got to watch out for. So yeah, we are looking at quantity as well as quality to make sure that it's suitable for um, drinking water and, um, you know, just general municipal use. Sounds tasty. Oh, yeah. Now, does it, does, is it just for like human consumption that you're checking this water quality or does it also have to do with like water quality of like, just say like fishery too? Do you check those two or that's just another um, separate area? Yeah, that would be like more fisheries, biologists, okay. dudes, geochemists stuff. I, or not geochemists, just chemists in general. I, um, I'm strictly looking at water where fish do not live, you know, okay. it's, uh, it's groundwater just within sand and clay layers of the earth where we, we pull a lot of drinking water out of. 
Well, Kirk, uh, we've officially lost interest now that it doesn't involve fish. Yeah. <laughs> Still probably a cool but, job. Still probably a cool job, though. But Yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, but let's get back to fishing because that's what we're really all here for. So we actually met because um, I started doing some work for Fly Lords, writing some columns for the Northeast Trout section. Um, but you actually started your own thing called Flavor on the Fly. Uh, what does that even mean and how did that come about? So Flavor on the Fly is just a quasi-monthly article. Um, sometimes I'm more on top of it than other months, but uh, that's, you know, that's the goal. And uh, it's basically a, a fishing story, um, fly fishing story particularly, and uh, all about a fishery, a, a type of species or a type of preparation. And at the end of the story, there's a recipe. So um, I'm fascinated with fishing and, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, culinary aspect of things and um, just making sure that people know how precious um, these resources are you know if they keep one and they're going about it the right way they're going to enjoy it they're not just doing some half-assed thing that's going to result in no one liking it and it getting thrown in the garbage like you know there's a lot of the stuff is so valuable you can't even buy most of it in the store you know that we're eating so it's really good I think to be mindful and uh and have you know also in this piece is I always have like conservation as a forefront um so if there's a fishery that's not sustainable I'm not gonna I'm not gonna harvest from that I'm not gonna make a recipe but you know there are some out there that obviously we can still enjoy and eat so uh just writing articles about fly fishing and what to do with your catch once you have it in the cooler or back at the house cool well we're all about conservation here at tide chasers because we realize how precious these fish populations really are and really more how sensitive they are to all of us crappy people is really all it is about. Mm -hmm. um, so when you do these articles though, are you coming up with these recipes on the fly? Are you coming up with them yourself or is it kind of you search around and find a good one, try it out, see how it goes? No, they're all uh, original recipes. Um, I wouldn't say I come up with them on the fly necessarily. They're uh... You know, I, sometimes there's a pretty involved like brainstorming process. Some of them are just recipes I've been cooking for a long time, and now I get a chance to share them with folks. And some of them, you know, I, I develop for the series. So, you know, going out of my comfort zone a little bit and um, drawing inspiration from other chefs around the world. Um, I should do preface that by saying like other chefs, I'm not a technically trained chef. I'm just like a foodie guy that grew up doing it. So pulling from chefs around the world, not other chefs, because I'm not one. <laughs> Do you cook fish on a regular basis or is this kind of just accelerated how much you eat fish? No, I've always cooked fish. Um, and we come, I come from a, a family that hunts and fishes. So it, it has always been wild game and fish and in the kitchen. I actually just finished up cooking dinner before this and, uh, made some redfish collars, uh, with, um, zucchini and squash from the garden and some beets from the garden. So you know, it's always been in my family, like gardening, hunting, fishing, and taking all that stuff back into the kitchen. What the heck did you just say? A redfish collar? You got yep. to read that art. You got to read that article, Bobby. I read it earlier before you even got on. Yeah, he, that, it's interesting. I never thought I've, I've heard of other fish that we use the collar to make stuff. And it just it's just incredible. But I've never thought of using a redfish collar. Yeah, so I guess 
some people call it the throat. Some people call it the collar. It's, it's, it's this area on the underside of the fish between like where the gills start and a little bit past the pectoral fins. Um, so, you know, you take your fillets off the side or you can you know, cook the fish whole if you want to do that. But if you're filleting it, take the fillets off the side. And then there's this strip of meat on the underside of the fish that oftentimes just gets thrown away because with the carcass. But if you, you know, use some kitchen shears and cut that piece of bone up around where the gills are and then um, just kind of sever the skin around it and you can keep the pectoral fins on there and everything. It's a, it's a hefty chunk of meat that um, a lot of people don't even think about. And I would say it equates to probably the amount of half a fillet. So, you know, you got your red drum, you take two fillets and get another half by taking that collar out. And it's a slightly different texture meat too. A little bit more um, crab-like, a little bit like, it, it's got a little bit more integrity to it than a, um, than a fillet does. Just like, yeah just like some people though like they, a lot of people they skip the cheek meat too right a lot of fish mm -hmm. everyone forgets the cheek meat you know that's that's like the scallop of the fish you know there's a right. lot of fish that has cheek meat you got fluke has cheek meat i think redfish has cheeks meat um i forgot there's a few other ones that have really good chunks of cheek meat and everyone just forgets about it when they toss them yep yeah man and that's uh that was a you mentioned that article i wrote about them a big point I wanted to drive home was let's think about all the usable pieces on these fish and not just throw away and waste stuff. I'll tell you what. So I was just got back from Florida and we caught a pretty decent sized pompano. Uh, and pompano are notorious. You cook them whole. So you just cut out the, you just uh, gut them and then you just lemon all the spices on top, throw it in the oven, bake it. Um, and basically the meat just falls off. It's like a, how I do trout too. I always cook trout whole. Um, but we were with this guy and we finished eating the pompano both sides. And he said, are you not going to eat the head? I was like, what do you mean you're going to eat that? He said, oh, it's the delicacy. The best part of the pompano is eating the head. And he literally took the head off and just started sucking all the like meat out of the cheeks and out of the forehead and definitely ate the eyeballs too. And he said, it's the best part of the pompano. And I tried a little bit and it was way too fishy for me. Like I couldn't even stomach it. It was not enjoyable at all so uh this is what i'm envisioning with redfish collars i'm guessing it's probably better than that though speaking yeah. a hefty piece of meat and not uh, eyes and other whatever was going on there <laughs> um but that's interesting because i i'm i gotta tell you i'm guilty i've gotten one redfish filleted it like you said blackened it of course um that's just my go-to um, I did not read this article, so I don't know what you actually suggested in that article as terms of how to cook a collar. So maybe you can enlighten us on how you would prepare and cook a collar. Well, that article goes into grilling them. And I basically did like a shrimp and grits version. Um, but instead of shrimp, I use redfish drum collar. Um, but tonight, I mean, that's a little bit more involved. You know, you got to make the grits and the saute the peppers and onions and all that stuff. Tonight, you know, as a quick just dinner, man, I just, I marinated them in some honey, orange juice, and um, hot sauce. Like, that's just what was in the fridge, you know. Look around, see what you have to work with. Put all that stuff in a bag, marinated them for a couple hours, took them out, patted them dry with paper towels, and then seasoned them with, um, I have this mix I really like. It's called Chardonnay Wine Rub, and it's got, like, salt that is 
infused with Chardonnay and it's got some rosemary and parsley and a little brown sugar, salt and pepper. I use that in tandem with a blackening rub. And uh, yeah, just fried them in a pan with some oil and butter. I like to add some like oil to my butter when I fry things just because it kind of lowers that like burning point. So you can get a little bit more heat out of your butter before it starts to just get brown and start smoking. But yeah, man, it was good and it's simple. It sounds delicious. Uh, and you're saying you have no culinary background, didn't go to school, <laughs> like any of that, right? I didn't, but my parents were great cooks, wild game stuff growing up. And then I did work in a uh, fine dining restaurant for probably like six or seven years, but I was always front of the house. Mm -hmm. um, but every chance I got, man, I was back there in the kitchen, like talking to the chef and trying to learn things. But yeah, I never was technically a cook or anything like that. I mean, the way you describe it sounds like the way a cook would describe how he preps a fish. Now, Bobby was talking a little bit about that pompano and how it tasted too fishy. Um, from your experience, what's the prop? Well, what's your proper way of how would you call it? Um, what do you guys call it when you guys are out in the out in the field and you guys, you know, you, you, you shoot a, a deer, dress it. What's the proper way to dress a fish as you're out on the, you know, on the water and you get it and you and you want to keep it proper so it's ready for like so it's. Of the best tasting meat once you pull it out of the fridge or pull it out of cool. Mm -hmm. That's a good question, man. A lot of people don't think about that. They wind up out there on the boat and they're like, oh, I've got this nice fish. I want to keep it, but I don't have a cooler with ice or, yeah. you know, and then it sun dried, sun, yeah. turn to a sun dried redfish on the deck somewhere. You're right. I mean, it can be okay, but definitely not as good as it could have been. No. So I think the best thing to do is first off, you know, prepare. If you're going to keep fish, prepare beforehand, have a cooler, have ice, um, be ready. Don't have, don't make like this half-assed decision and end up ruining a fish. So, and if you, so I would go out with a cooler with ice. And then when I catch a fish, I slit its gills, bleed it. Um, you know, it's going to keep pumping that blood through its gills for a little bit. Make sure you, when you do bleed them, I, actually a lot of times I like to cut a little hole right in the mouth, like the underside of the fish. Um, like in the throat area where I can put my finger through it and get a real solid grip where that fish isn't going anywhere, even if it flops around. So I'll cut a little hole, put my finger in there and then submerge that fish, slice the gills under the water. Because if you slice them under the water, you're not going to get that coagulation that you'd get if it was on the open air. And it ends up pumping a lot more blood out of the flesh. And that's going to make that fish taste better. It's going to be a little cleaner taste. It's going to kill it quickly, which is pretty, you know, ethical. And it's going to, if you do end up freezing that fish, it's going to last longer in the freezer because the blood is one of the first things that starts to taste real fishy um, when you're dealing with frozen fish. So have a cooler with ice, bleed it, put it in the ice. You can gut it too if you want. I mean, sometimes I'll do it. It, it kind of puts things in motion. It's like a little, it's like doing absolutely everything you can. It's almost like a little spiritual thing, you know, to do all that, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary if you're going to, you know, take it back and fillet it that evening. But, um, and then if you really want to get kind of nerdy about it, you can put salt water in your cooler with your ice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like road salt works, um, it's going to actually make your water in your cooler or your ice in your cooler, it's going to be like this little slushy. And that will get colder than 32 degrees Fahrenheit because of the addition of ice, because you've just lowered the um melting or the um freezing point 
of that ice. So you can get a real nice ice brine and get that thing nice and cold and completely surrounded. You know, when you throw a cooler, fish in a cooler of ice and just have it sitting on top, bottom side's real good, but the top side is getting exposed to some warmer air. But if you have that slushy of kind of watery ice in there, every crevice of that fish is going to be, you know, as cold as it can possibly be. Man, we're going to need bigger coolers, Bobby. I don't really keep that many fish. You know Me that. neither. Me neither. Keep one a year. Um, give us a sense, Kirk, if you can. What, what are we looking forward to with your next piece? Uh, so I do this thing called shellfish side mission, which is actually not keeping a finned fish. It's about having an open mind and being able to forage um, some other things that are in your environment when you're out fishing. So I did one on oysters. Um, there'll be one on mussels eventually, but the one that I'm working up now is about blue crabs and, uh, you know, going out and targeting some stripers um, and throwing some crab pots out, some crab traps while you're out there. Because, you know, as we all know, in this room, at least, uh, stripers are hurting and I'm not going to promote keeping those right now. So, while you're out there, if you really want to go home with something, I mean, bring some crab traps and uh, load them up and, um, you know, go home with crabs instead. Although crabs are kind of just, the survey didn't come out too good for those either, but I think they're doing a little better than the rockfish are. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. I, I think numbers on Maryland crabs have been depleting by the years over, you know? Yeah, but they, so we just got our first regs on commercial crabbers now they're allowed to keep 15 bushel a day of males um that's the first ever limitation they've had on male crab harvest so they're still pretty they're not what they were back in the day but mm -hmm. going out and catching a, a dozen or two with your crab traps while you're fishing is not going to do yeah definitely not damage i know i mean I, back in the day you, you just hear every whenever you hear blue crab it's always Maryland blue crab, Maryland blue crab, like that is like the epic center, especially around I, Kent Island too. You know, you guys were, you guys were a big stronghold for that blue crab fishery down there too. Yeah, man, there's, and there's still a lot of it around here. So still very much a part of the culture. So I have to pause for a second because when Kirk started talking about stripers, he actually called them stripers. And I didn't tell you guys, but I made a bet with myself that every time the Maryland boy called it a rockfish, I would take a drink. Mm. I, and the first one came out stripers and the second one came out rockfish so yeah uh, we'll, we'll see how this goes because that's the game i'm going to play all night <laughs> um but speaking of rockfish let's talk about them because you being nestled in the upper chesapeake area um you're right in the the, the mayhem or the plethora area of all the striper migrations um so i'm guessing that's one of your favorite fish to target your main fish that you target um how do you do that? Was there anything special that you do different down there in Maryland than we do up here in New Jersey? I'm guessing you're not trolling bunker spools, spoons all the time like we are, or um, throwing docks maybe, because I don't know, it's just what we do up here. But how, how do you fish for stripers down there, or if you call them rockfish? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I go back and forth, man. If I'm thinking about it, I call them stripers. If I'm just you know, moving too fast, sometimes Say I call them rockfish. Oh, now that you told me the rules, I'm gonna just call them rock. Just keep calling rockfish and see if we can get Bobby on But oh yeah, dude, um, I do a lot of dock fishing around here actually. Oh yeah, 
Yep. There's a, if, if you can find a dock with like close proximity to deep water, and especially if it's a dock that is owned by someone that only lives there half the year, or it's an old dilapidated dock that's not getting much use, man, there's, that's like one of, like one of my prime spots around here is, is fishing docks. I'll pitch a, you know, pitch like a clouser or just a big bait fish pattern under there, or, you know, when I'm spin fishing, just a three eighth ounce or a quarter ounce jig head with a soft plastic paddle tail. And that, that can be a great, um, great habitat for them. But yeah, I pretty much start my striper season in like March. Um, well, I won't even say that. I started in February, I guess. Um, so we've got a couple power plants around here that have warm water discharges. And you can fish those as early as late January, February, March, and catch some real nice fish. So this year I actually caught my um, my biggest striper to date and throw on a two ounce jig um, in about 25 feet of water, but there's so much current you need that kind of weight um, because of the discharge and it was a 47 and a half inch. So that was like, I was wow. jumping up and down about that. Um, and I'm but, pretty much dead with not almost dead, not dead winter, but you like, you said February. Yeah. Yeah. It's cold, man. It's real yeah, cold. We, 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 we used to have a power plant up here and we could, we could catch bass in there from November, December, January, March, two feet of snow on the ground and yep. they're still fish in there. Oh yeah, dude. So. There's, I mean, I remember like breaking some ice to get out there and catch them. So, so I'm looking at the map, right? So Kent Island and you are literally upper the, a little bit up the Chesapeake, a little bit. Are you, are you like, I guess, further upper than the breeding grounds? I would assume, right? Because they're they the breeding grounds are like on the flats, right? Yeah, the flats are north of me. So, so the flats, oh, the fat, they're further north of you. Okay. Yep. So if you if you're looking at a map, you see the Susquehanna River, which is like the main trip of Chesapeake. Mm-hmm. That area right at the mouth of the Susquehanna is a big breeding ground. It's called. Uh, the Susquehanna Flats and a lot of guys go out there it used to be historically one of the best spots around um, starting to come back a little bit but there have been times um, where it hasn't been as good but yeah that's a great spawning ground and then all of the tributaries around me on the western shore and the eastern shore man get a pretty decent push of fish um, in the you know late winter early spring you ever get on those flats on the fly though that's my you know whenever I hear flats all I ever hear is fly fly yeah. pick up the fly that's it that's all i'm throwing i i had a really fun opportunity to get on the flats with a fly this year and it was the first time i had done it um but it actually wasn't north where i am it was south south mm-hmm. end, near the mouth of the bay when the fish were actually done their spawn and on their way out um one of my buddies invited me out he had been out there and you know seen a bunch of fish and we got out there and it was insane, man. I mean, it's like three to four feet of water and you're sight casting 40 plus inch cows. It, I was so nervous and jittery. Like I couldn't even perform. (laughs) I had my little 16 foot Carolina skiff out there with three of us crammed in there. One of my buddies uh, caught one, but I did not yet. But just seeing that was amazing, dude. Like it was so cool. We were seeing them. So there were counters rays around. And the cow nose rays would dig these little divots in the sand. Yeah. Um, you know, like looking for what, shellfish or whatever they're looking for. And we would see these rockfish come through and 
dip their dip their head in the divot. And I guess they were looking around for crabs or something, man. And then they would pop out and keep swimming. They were checking out these little holes. And these rockfish were so spooky. And um, just basically acting unlike I've ever seen them act before. They were just a different fish in that environment than I'm used to catching. Um, I was, you know, second guessing my leader size and this fly's too big. And it was just things I've never thought of before when it comes to catching a striper because around me, man, they're just so aggressive and pretty much do all the time. I mean, three, four feet of water, you're talking a 40 inch bass and three, four feet of water. It's still like the way it looks, it's a big shadow. Yeah. And I mean, I, I assume it would be the same tactics maybe with redfish that we, you'd have to lead it at least five to 10 feet away for it to notice. And then like, if you drop a fly on its head, it, you're going to spook it hundred percent. But yep. then with that kind of fishing, you, you got to be able to, to double haul your butts off and get that 70, 90, 90, 90 feet shoot. Yeah, man. I, and I think I was throwing a little bit too big of a fly. Um, I think they were kind of keyed in on small stuff mm-hmm. and I didn't have any flies tied that really matched that, you know, what they were looking for. I think you need a small fly with like a decently big hook, which is kind I of, mean, they may, I mean, they may have been just like, but you said it was earlier in the season. So I would say like ju- juvenile blue, blue claws, right. Maybe just coming out of the mud, maybe something mm-hmm. like that. And you guys might have a population like brown shrimps up there. Who knows? You know, I think that early season, they're always keyed on that really, really small stuff. Yeah. That's, that's good. Like I was thinking maybe a little blue crabs. So next year I'm going to go back with, you know, more flies in my box and see if I can make something happen. Cause that was just too cool to see. You gotta be like Bobby, man. Every time we go out, he has like nine boxes with them. He's like, I'm prepping for every single thing. I don't care. The feeling that Kirk just experienced, I never want to experience ever again. It's happened to me more than once. It's going to happen again, probably. I mean, quick aside here, because I took a, a backpacking trip into Colorado one time. We hike like five miles up a mountain to these alpine lakes. They're just filled with cutthroats and everything. And you could see them just like you could, Kirk. And you through the kitchen sink at them couldn't catch anything like couldn't get them to hit anything they were seeing the leader they were running away from flies it was the weirdest experience of my life and i did end up figuring it out because i i cheated um because we did want to catch one to eat so i put in a big woolly bugger and got a fish close enough to it and ended up snagging it in the side um and got it in and we ended up cooking that fish for dinner but when i filleted it it was just filled with eggs and I took the eggs and then I threw them back in the water and oh my God, could you have seen like, it was just like piranhas all over really? all these cutthroats everywhere. Yeah. So like when I saw them feeding, it was because a female was dropping eggs and a fish would come up behind them and grab the egg. Then that's what I was seeing. And I literally, I remember it vividly. I was going through my vest and I was like, my egg pattern box, I'm not going to need this. Fish aren't spawning right now. But in Colorado, when you're up in the mountains, everything's delayed. And me being the Northeast, I was like, there's no way I'm going to need this. I'll leave it home. And I will never have that happen again because now I carry my egg pattern box with me all the time. And I carry nearly everything with me all the time, at least something close enough, because I, I just can't stand it when you're like there and you're in the moment and you have the wrong fly. It's like the worst feeling ever. Yeah, I hear you, man. You probably don't need your egg box here in the Chesapeake, but <laughs> that's probably true. Everywhere else. <laughs> Bring yeah. it. If, I'm fly, if I'm fly fishing for stripers, I have my crab box. 
I have my deceiver box and I have my eight, nine inch beast fly box. All yeah. three boxes are coming with me. I was like, it's, it, it, they got to hit something in that box. Those three. There's a, I forget who tied it. There's a hot pattern that's going around right now. Um, it's a, it's a sand flea. They're like spinning deer hair on a hook to make it look like a sand flea or a sand mm -hmm. crab. Uh, and they're throwing that for stripers now um, because I don't know what mm -hmm. happened this year, but New Jersey stripers just decided to only eat sand fleas this year. So like everyone's all excited sand about it out. digging up sand fleas and somebody made a pattern and it works. It catches fish. And uh, maybe that's what they were eating along with the blue claps, right? As the rays kicked up some stuff, some sand fleas yeah. down, the stripers came right in and ate them. Damn. Yeah. That's uh, another thing. It's all possible. It's all possible. Could be juvenile eels for all we know now that dig down and then they get plopped up when the, the cow noses come through. Right. Yeah. Man. There's all, all kinds of things, man. I think it was just whatever it was, it was small. Mm -hmm. uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your redfish there. Because um, you also get a sweet redfish migration that we are really jealous of in New Jersey. We have a couple comes through, but nothing, nothing like, like you see. Um, I'm guessing kind of the same story. You do mostly spin for them, but sometimes fly, which is fun. Yep. That's pretty much. So like I said earlier, we do get reds up here around Ken Island from time to time, but the majority of the fish are going to be further south in the bay. And I'll make a, you know, three, three and a half hour drive down to like Cape Charles area near the mouth of the bay to target them. And uh, yeah, it's pretty special, man, because in inshore we'll get, you know, puppies slot, slightly over slot, but then out in the main bay in the big water, dude, we get these pushes of just huge pools and hundreds of them in a school. I was lucky enough to stumble upon one of those schools two years ago, two summers ago, and it was amazing. Just hundreds of 40 plus inch pools on top swimming right at us. They were breaking on bait for a minute and we got, we caught a couple in that and then we, they went down and we lost them. And then we saw them again, just a, you, you can see it from hundreds of yards away. Just the water looks copper, like dark. And you roll up on them and they weren't feeding anything, just traveling. And um, just all about a foot under the water, swimming the same direction, cast in there. I mean, you could have cast a shoe in there, man. They're gonna eat anything. <laughs> Some of us are like, that's the kind of fish we want. I'm gonna throw a yeah. shoe in there. I'm gonna catch me one. Uh-huh. But the, the little ones in the shallows are cool too. Uh, last year I caught my first Chesapeake red on the fly and uh, it was up on a clam bag. Uh, so there's a lot of aquaculture facilities around here mm -hmm. and, um, or not facilities, I guess, uh, people lease areas of creeks to do aquaculture. So um, they have these clam bags, which just keep a bunch of clams in one area and, and prevent, you know, rays and crabs and stuff from eating them. But it's great structure, and um, a lot of times on a really calm day, and if you get your conditions line up just right, we we saw school of red drum um, pods of maybe like eight to twelve, just pushing wake and tailing for a minute, and just you know sight casting to them in the bay, which is pretty special. I mean, it happens, but it doesn't happen a lot. It's nothing like down south in Charleston or Florida or anything. So. Um, yeah, caught like a 22 inch red on the fly, sight casting it in the bay, which was really cool for me. I've caught a, quite a few on spin gear, but that was the uh, the one that I sight fished on fly. That was pretty special. Yeah, oh, that, sounds special. That, 
it is special. Any fish on the fly is special. The fact that it doesn't have to be a 40 inch bull red. It just has to be, you saw it, you fed it, you let it, it ate, and then you landed it. That's it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a whole magical moment. See, some people don't understand us fly fishermen, the, the amount of joy we get out of just something like that. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, uh, it's unlike anything else. The excitement. I mean, you can blind cast all day and have a great time, but seeing a fish, hunting it down and, and making that perfect cast and getting it to eat is just on another level. And then stripping it correctly instead of trout stripping on it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up like when I started fly fishing, it was saltwater. Oh, okay. So I don't really have that stigma to break. Like a lot of guys do. It's a tough so if one. We put, if we put Kirk in the Delaware, he's going to be breaking everything off. Is what he yeah. 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 We're going to, he's going to lose every fish strip set. And- yep. <laughs> yeah. No six X for Kirk. <laughs> um, I want to switch gears one more time though. Cause you're also, in a really cool place. And if our other co-host Dan was here, he'd be freaking out because you have some awesome snakehead fishing down there. Um, they're same waters we're talking, just in the Chesapeake everywhere. Um, and then I had one more question about them. Go, go ahead, answer that first. Yeah, so they, um, all the tribs, man, once it gets fresh enough, you can pretty much find them. Uh, they started in a little pond in Crofton, Maryland, and since they've spread to the Potomac and pretty much every major tributary has them nowadays, some with greater concentrations than others, but they're turning up everywhere. I mean, the other day I read a report that one was caught in the Potomac um, about like 15 miles west of Harper's Ferry. So, I mean, that's like, that's small territory. That's like a lot of current cold water. That's was kind of baffling to me, but they're everywhere now. I mean, they're, they're all up here in our area and we get freezing point, freezing ponds, freezing swamps, and they survive through our freezing cold waters up here. So they're, they're, they're oh. here and they're here for good, man. I mean, I mean, I've, I've read enough studies and a lot of people have done the studies. They, they really don't interfere with the ecosystem at all. I just think maybe it helps the ecosystem a little more because when they release those fries, that's just literally, literally more food for like large mouths and like other fish too. So it's just not like, you know, like they've, they've cut open snakes and yeah, it's not like they found thousands of large mouth babies in there in the snakes. And, you know, they're, they're just feeding on whatever, like minnows and like the regular stuff that everyone else sees. Um, how close are you to Blackwater? Cause I don't know black, I heard Blackwater is just like almost the epicenter of snakehead fishing. It's basically the epicenter on the eastern shore mm-hmm. um and i'm about a an hour and some change from it okay. but that is where i do most of my stuff um it's a good spot it's getting pounded nowadays though man mm-hmm. everyone there um you got to really paddle farther than the next guy to find a good bite yeah because everyone's down there is bobbers and minnows bobbers and minnows and you got to yeah. find the right spot um yeah. from the roadside any launch any so you got to be prepared to paddle if you want to separate yourself from the crowds down there. I think this might have been the one that Bobby was, was trying to remember, but his uh, his bourbon and whiskey is kicking in. So I'm going to ask, um, ever caught one on a fly? Because me and Bobby's like, we're itching to get one on a fly so bad. Two. Caught two on a fly. Um, both been pretty small, probably about two pounders, but fun nonetheless. Uh, the, the first one was on a fry ball. And I 
for your listeners that might not know what that means, like a, a snakehead have their young and then they protect them for a while when they're young and vulnerable. So you would see this like cloud of little snakehead fry in the water. You find that typically there's going to be at least one snakehead, sometimes two snakeheads guarding those fry from predators. So I found that and uh, dude, I casted in that thing like maybe 40 times before it finally ate. And I was switching through, I was throwing a topwater popper fly at first and I uh, did like maybe 20 casts of that. And then I switched to a subsurface little like cottontail, like um, we call it zunk, uh, strip, was that a zunker strip? A no. zonker, like a zonker. Yeah. Zonker, yeah. Threw one of them in there and it took, you know, 15 more casts to get the thing to eat. You just got to agitate it enough where it wants to, strike and defend its fry um because it's not really a hungry thing it's just you piss it off enough you'll finally get it to eat mm-hmm. or to strike and um that was super exciting and the second one was just in this tiny little creek man i mean it was only three feet wide and just meandering fragmites um and i was just we in a canoe just paddle up and get to where you could have a solid casting lane and send one up there around like a little point before it meandered again, the other side, a little cup bank. And um, we, it's the cool thing about them, as you guys know, I'm sure is, or one of the many cool things is that you, they, you see them push and wake a lot of times before they actually hit. So I'm stripping my fly and I see this wake form behind it, you know, like you would imagine like a shark in the ocean or something. And then got the strike and got him in. So two very noteworthy fish. And uh, I, my goal is to catch like a 10 pounder on fly. I really want to do that. Yeah, our biggest problem you kind of described is the waters up by us in Jersey. You end up catching more trees than you do actually getting it in the water. Yeah. Uh, it's just like all swamps by us and no casting, no time, camera roll cast. Like literally yeah. just, just nowhere to throw a fly. It's just, it's yeah. impossible. It's weeded up too. So as soon as you do get the fly in there, it just gets covered in weed because a lot of my flies are not weedless, which you know much about snakeheads where they live is pretty much all just grass and weed beds and, and junk yeah the water could be looking disgusting i mean you wouldn't even want to like put your finger in it because it would probably like melt off and somehow snakeheads are in there it's like oil slicks on top sometimes it's crazy um so we have not found a good place where we can actually just get a cast off which is why we haven't been able to get one on the fly um I thought of my question though, and it was bringing this back to flavor on the fly. Oh yeah, okay. Um, because snakeheads, I have not eaten one yet because uh, I just told you the waters we catch them in are like oil filled. Um, here they're delicious, uh, and me and Qua we throw everything back. Um, the um, DEC in New York and New Jersey pretty much says you're supposed to kill them all, which I don't know if I agree with. Uh, I don't think Qua does either. No, um, they, they frown upon us one. here. <laughs> if we did kill one, I would be going in the fry pan. Have you ever eaten one? Have you thought about it? Made a recipe for one? Uh, all the above. So, okay. yeah. I um, Dude, they're one of my favorite fish to eat. They're very good. They're so mild and so... Their texture is unlike any other freshwater fish. It's almost like a saltwater fish texture. I mean, it's like steaky. It's got some integrity to it. And um, they're so mild. Like... I think if you're going to serve someone fish that is a little apprehensive of like eating like a wild caught fish or something like that's the one to do it with, man. They're just so approachable, so easy, so good. 
and uh yeah flavor on the fly i, I did a it's an egghead recipe which is um it's like a greek style snakehead recipe where you basically bake the fish with a bunch of like tomatoes and onions and kalmata olives and stuff and um serve it over pasta and that's a great way to go about it i mean they're great just fried or grilled or whatever but if you want to get a little bit more involved that's a really fun and kind of uh, exciting way to prepare them you know people might not have had it like that before and the cool thing about them again is that you know their their structure is pretty beefy that way like you can bake it and it's not just going to fall apart or turn to mush like it's going to maintain its structure and be a nice filet when you serve it even after like a 40 minute bake in the oven how do you feel about keep, keeping snakehead are you for it or are you against it I know this is a very contentious topic. Very. Um, yeah. So I'll just. Come on. Give me your answer. Don't give me a lukewarm. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know straight up. Yeah. I have never let one go. You've never let one go. Never let one go. Okay. I have eaten every one that I've caught. I've never like killed one and just thrown it away or something. But yeah, I've never let one go. Um, and I know the research is saying that they're like ecologically not the monsters we thought they were but my worry is that um my worry is twofold one that we're not looking at non-game species enough um like frogs and killifish and like you know sure they're not damaging largemouth bass populations but i'm worried about a lot more than just that a lot more than just the angler side of things like the whole ecosystem intact um and then also, now that we're seeing how adaptable they are and how easy they spread, sure, maybe they're not doing a heck of a lot of harm in our environments right now, but if they do continue to branch out and get into some more vulnerable waters, who knows what they can do? Like, I worry if they, you know, make it to brook trout territory, like, what does that mean for brook trout? Like, things like that. So um, I just err on the side of caution, and um, I keep and eat mine. No, I would, I would do the same actually, yep. if I could, um, they have invaded now the upper Delaware area, which has got me very concerned with the trout population and, um, smallie population. And of course there's a whole bunch of other things you mentioned. Um, so if I did catch one up there, I would definitely do what you did, uh, and probably throw it in the fry pan instead of letting it go. But unfortunately the places we fish is just not going to happen anytime soon and on top of that the places they're in i don't know how they got there but they're very uh they, they're just small ponds that they can't move from so mm -hmm. uh, i don't feel as bad as letting them go when i do catch them there uh, but like i said if it was in the delaware or maybe in the chesapeake where you are i'd probably be doing the same and throwing in the fry pan um, I did want to mention or talk about striper regulations or rockfish regulations only because New Jersey this past year has tightened some of their rules with stripers. Um, we've changed size limits. We now have a circle hook rule in regulation. Uh, is Maryland doing anything of that sort to kind of help the rockfish population recover and stay healthy and abundant? It, yeah, they are. Um we've had a circle hook regulation for a few years now um if you're using you know cut or live bait you have to use a circle hook we 
have switched from historically what was a two fish limit per person to a one fish limit per person um, for recreational anglers. And uh, we have a couple weeks out of the summertime where you can't fish for them when uh, they, they found that release mortality was too high, um, you know, when there's not a lot of dissolved oxygen. So like late July where can't fish for them for a couple weeks. Um, but the commercial guys have been fairly untouched, um, which is, you know, concerning for me. And then I think, you know, we, we'll keep it on rockfish here, but a little aside is just like Maryland has done barely anything about Omega and the Manhattan fishery. And I think that's one of our huge problems is just the lack of bait because people want dog food and fish oil pills. And do you think um, because the, the, the Omega ordeal that you guys don't have the amount of bunker left in that bay as you guys had years before that the breeding grounds in your area have lost a lot of population because I know up here for a fact, like the Hudson, the Delaware, like all our breeding grounds up here have almost doubled in size mm -hmm. and that holds fish like Raritan wow. and all those. Yeah. Those, those, our numbers up here have gone up, you know, in numbers. And then it seems like the Chesapeake breeding grounds have gone down in numbers. I'm, I'm wondering if it has to do like, you know, like what you said, you know, the, the, the whole mega effect. And then with the, the Menhaden, not as bountiful as before, but like Bobby noticed the past two, three years up here, our bunker school has gotten ridiculous. Really? Yeah. There were years where we didn't have no bunker. And then, then it says like past two, three years, we have bunkers for miles. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's good to hear for you guys. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Um, but you're saying you've gotten more like breeding class, Stripers yeah. up there too. Okay. Yeah, the numbers I've gotten, they look they they're looking better. Science wise, I don't know, but as from a fisherman perspective, we're seeing a better class of fish, like bigger classes of fish. So, and especially I think with the whole that whole new anything over thirty eight goes back, I think it's going to help out, but mm -hmm. it's also going to damage the fishery too because now everyone's going to keep everything in between twenty eight and you know under thirty eight. So it's kind of like that 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 2015 class of stripers that are have many more many more years of breeding in them are going to get harvested instead of that you know that over 38 big fish that maybe has a few more another year or two maybe a few more years on it you know I mean it's kind of it's kind of like a double-edged sword right you you try to protect the big girls but then now you know they're gonna they're gonna harvest all the potential younger years that's gonna have more years of heart breeding too so can't win it all man. So you guys are operating on a slot limit up there now, right? Yeah, between 28, yeah, between 28 and under 30, I think 38, 30. So what's okay. funny is we just did that for fluke too this year. Yeah. Oh, slot for fluke. Yeah, slot for fluke. We got they give us three fish. We get one, two fishes from 17 to 17.99, and they get we get one over 18. 17.99, like can't be 18. Oh, it better not touch that 18. Yeah, it better not touch that 18. You only get that you only get that one fish over 18. That's it. Huh. All your other that's fishes funny, have to man. have to be in between 17s. That's funny, man. I, I we've always had weird of what I thought were weird measurements for flounder here. It was like, you know, like I think it was like 16 and a half or something. And like that's the only fish in the book that has a half on it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
New Jersey had that at 1.2. We went from 15 to 16 to 16 and a half to 17 to 17 and a half. And now we're at 18. And now we've got this slot in place. So I, I don't really know. We'll see. We'll see how it see if it does damage. It helps. We don't know. We'll find out, you know. Um, yeah. my other thing was, do you did they get rid of that trophy season for you guys down there? Or you guys shortened. Uh-huh. It's shortened. have it, it's shortened, which is okay. good. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, we operate versus like we have a spring season and a summer season. And in the summertime, it's uh 19 inches, anything above 19 inches one fish per person um and in spring trophy season i think it's 28 inches i don't know man it's been so long since i've like i don't care about keeping a fish that big anyway so but i think that's what it is now but um yeah a lot of like commercial guys still get to keep their two fish per client um they did away with their boat fish yeah uh but you know, it's it's hard, man. It's real fisheries. You know, they're cyclical, but I think we're seeing the alarm bell and not reacting fast enough, is my personal opinion. Um, but you know, similar to what you said earlier, man. Like anecdotally, like what am I seeing out in the water? I don't know if it's I'm getting better at fishing or uh, if there's more fish around. Because to me, it's I'm catching plenty of fish, but I know the science is saying there aren't as many. So it's it's hard to know what to think. No, you're just better. You're just getting better at fishing. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, rank them. You mentioned you don't you don't keep big stripers. You had to keep a fish striper, redfish, snakehead. Rank them for us. Okay. Um, snakehead number one. I'm gonna and... have to get one of those things. I have to get one of those and eat one of those. Oh yeah, dude. No question. Snakehead. Oh, Florida. And. Uh little caveat if we were throwing blue cat in there blue cat would be number two dude really blue cat are really blue good yeah yeah oh, never thought of blue cat but they have to be a right size right because you don't you don't want to be dragging a 50 pounder home and try to cook that because you right. imagine the amount of like pollutants inside metals, and stuff. Yeah. metals and stuff in there yeah i mean so i mean they've they've gotten pretty bad down there too haven't they blue cats yep yeah we have a lot of them now um but they are tasty how, you, like how, how, how do you fish for those uh jugs what do you, <laughs> so, what are you my, my parents own some property um, on the Chop Tank River and we'll go out there and we, we have like a I do most of my blue cat fishing in like uh, January and February just because there's so much other shit going on the rest of the year yeah. but we have um, me and my buddies have like a little squirrel hunt weekend where we all camp at, down at this property in the middle of nowhere and bring 22s and squirrel hunt for the weekend and at night we all just throw chunks for um blue cats you know just like cut up menhaden or cut up white birch or whatever so and, i thought uh, you were gonna say cut up pieces of squirrel at squirrels, first that's what i was about to get the like, out of here that's <laughs> like we, we, we shoot squirrels and then chunk them <laughs> that would be something no they're too good to eat for us man uh well, bobby, loves, bobby loves some squirrel hunting, oh yeah so. i love some buffalo wing squirrel oh yeah just make sure you get them tender enough is my thing uh, uh, my biggest thing is the hair i usually can never get the hair off of them and it just yeah. creeps me out sometimes but it is what it is but yeah that's i mean that's how i catch them throw them in the water um at dusk and at night and uh just chunking they're good but back to your question um i think i'd pick red drum then striper 
That's it. Blue cat, red drum, striper. Although red drum and striper are neck and neck. Um, hard to remove my biases from like population standpoint and flavor, but strictly based off flavor, I'd probably put striper ahead of red drum. But yeah. um, you know, given the state of the fisheries, I'd probably pick red drum over striper. Right. Yeah, I feel the same way. I keep one striper a year, and it's usually with qua. Um, and that's my, my quota for the year. Um, yeah. I do love me some striper. I mean, I think they're delicious. As long as you cut out the dark meat, um, they are good tasting fish. They're good, man. I, d- I normally just I just keep foul hooked fish these days. You know, if they're bleeding, I keep them. If not, I let them go. Yeah. It's a good ethical standpoint there. Um, you talked a lot about your fishing stories already, but any any huge success story you want to tell us about or my personal favorite some huge disaster that went wrong um mm. i have lots of those but <laughs> let me think for a sec um yeah we talked on a couple like real notable ones my first yeah, drum. a lot of successes that's why i'm asking because i really i I, I heard a story about from his other podcast he did i like that one though the whole camera bag deal oh yeah true. i like that. that that was a good story you guys did your research <laughs> i do i always do i just play stupid but i actually listen to it as well <laughs> but yeah so that was my quest for my first redfish we already hit the finale of me landing one but uh up until then man i was on quite quite a venture to get it and um you know as you guys mentioned in the beginning i uh, i do i write for fly lords and i do like freelance photography on the side so I have a camera and a couple lenses and stuff, and I keep them in a dry bag. And I was down in New Samaritan Beach, Florida, and um, with my, one of my buddies, and we we're launching a canoe from the side of a road to get back into this like impoundment system, looking for drum or tarpon or whatever we could find. And we pull off and unload all our gear, and uh, we get paddling. A couple minutes into the paddle, my buddy's like, "Shit, man, we're at the wrong spot. We got to go like another." mile up the road so we go back load everything up not even really thinking that quick it's like right up the road just throwing everything in the in the canoe and making up for lost time you know it's kind of we're just doing it quick going through the motions get to the next spot unload everything and uh i notice shit dude i forgot my camera bag at the last launch so we turn around and go back there and i left a paddle and my dry bag and inside my dry bag was a dslr camera three lenses and my wallet get back the paddle is right where i left it the dry bag which was sitting right next to the paddle was gone and i was like god damn it dude like what are the odds in that time someone came and snatched this and they were like ah who cares about that paddle we just want the good stuff and uh, so, yeah, we spent the next few hours just riding around this old, it was like a state park area, like riding around the roads, asking people, checking with the ranger, doing all, I mean, never came up. At the end of the day, though, I uh, ended up upgrading my camera gear. Now I have a mirrorless camera instead of a DSLR and I'm, you know, rolling with the punches. But uh, that was a, was a big backward step in my photography fishing career. I mean, the camera's all right, but like the wallet, though, 
Yeah, it's so the worst. Yeah. The wallet is the worst. And you said you were in Florida, so that means you weren't even near home. No, I had to fly home. And with that, when you don't have your license, they pull you like you have to go like super early and get um, questioned. And they're the questions they ask you when you're going through that process to like verify your identity verbally are just some weird questions that you wouldn't think of. They're like, all right, what's your mother's maiden name? Uh, what's your address? What is a landmark that's notable within five miles of your house? Uh, what high school did you go to? Like, what are the schools in your county? Like stuff like that, you know, and you're like rattling them all off. You're like, how oh, don't get one wrong shit. And they're like, uh, what's your mom's birthday? And I'm like, damn, dude, I know the month and the day, but I can't remember the year. And then, dude, you, you have one mess up and they have like, all right, now we got to ask you 10 more questions. because oh. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, just, let me just remind myself never to lose my wallet while on vacation. It wasn't as bad as I'm making it sound. It, the whole thing took 25 minutes. But oh, of, course, so of course, I arrived four hours earlier because I read all these forums online. They're like, it can be a nightmare. Arrive and I'm just like killing time in the airport, but I was prepared for the worst and ended up getting dealt a, a decent hand. And Ridiculous question. How do they know if you're right? They, so they're, they're on a computer and they're verifying all the stuff you tell all them. All the stuff. In real time. Yep. Okay. Probably, probably like all those like FBI databases. Yeah. They're able yep. to pull you up instantly. <laughs> that is nuts. Oh man. Okay. That's pretty bad. It's pretty terrible. Yep, but then I went home and caught a red drum on the fly in my own home waters. That's awesome. And, uh, went, went to Florida to look for one on the fly. Never happened. Yeah. Did, ran through all this. And then yeah. he goes home and catches one right in his backyard. Dude, and I had a, are no joke. I just, yeah. I dude, mean, they're so finicky down there. Uh, dude, I just spent a week trying to get them to eat something. Uh, I ended up figuring it out like pretty well. I mean, we ended up killing them in the end, but. I threw the kitchen sink at them, man. And I had to drop down to 15 pound fluoro to even get them close to the hook. Um, Whereabouts were you? Destin, Florida, which is on the panhandle over by Panama city. Um, and it gotcha. was just all surf. I mean, I was sitting on the beach drinking beer and if something decided to swim by, it got something thrown in its face. Um, usually turned around and went the other way. But at the end of the trip, I was like, I had enough of this. So dropped down to fluoro single hook, far enough away like a four foot leader a lot of not a live shrimp but a really really fresh shrimp and you threw it out in front of them and they still turned around and went the other way but uh every once in a while you got one that like turned around and went the other way and then went hmm maybe yeah. i should go with that and then yeah, turn yeah. back and come over and it swallows it so at the end of the day like five o'clock they started getting a little stupid where you could actually like pitch the shrimp in front of them and man they would just dart for it they would just like go right over to it and, and eat it um, but I mean, artificial not going to happen. Just yeah. wasn't going to work. It sucked. I mean, and I almost was going to bring my fly route to give it a shot, but I'm glad I didn't because my arm would probably fall off because I would just be throwing at them nonstop and just, yeah, I mean, you're running in the waves, following them right as they're cruising and it, it was exhausting, but we ended up doing okay. That's sweet though, man. I'm glad you yeah. got some. I've never fished for them in the surf like that, but um, it's, a, I, it's really, really fun. Yeah, it seems like it would be. There's so much different color, though. Like, they, you know, the, the the back bay reds always got that gold copper color, right? So out front in Destin, they got that white sand with that clear water. So they have that that white pigmentation. Like, all the photos Bobby sent me, it's like, it's like all white pigmentation. 
they're feeding they're feeding on like blue crab shrimp mole crab stuff like that so they have that blue tail that kills me every time i see one dude that's how they are in the bay here they're silver oh they're silver you guys got the silver, silver ones they're silver with the blue tail most of the time you know? oh that's cool i figured they'd be all red because yeah i think they're red and copper because of the mud and what they're eating back there the lower bay dude like where i get them around you know near the mouth it's it's really clear water and um pretty salty and it, with a incoming and outgoing tide man i mean you're flushing the whole system like there's there's a lot of current around there gotcha. up around us if you do luck into one um like i said you can from time to time they're going to be more gold but down there at the mouth they're pretty silver cool i've heard that if they are feeding on shrimp they get the blue in their tail mm-hmm. is that like a wives tail or have you guys heard that too uh yeah I was i figured it was just color the sand they're on kind of like fluke you know how fluke can change their colors kind of match where they are that's what i just figured it was like down in louisiana in the box which maybe you're right because they're probably in shrimp um but that shit is real muddy in there right so i figured they're trying to blend in a little more um with that dark color in the mud yeah that's what i i i hear that too that they they get that blue tail from eating shrimp and like crabs and stuff like that and when they when then when they switch over to that uh the uh, like fish diet mullet and stuff like that it's when they they lose their uh, their blue tail mm-hmm. that would make sense with the big bulls around us man i mean they're not really eating crustaceans the way the slots and puppies are and yeah by the time dude they lose all their color like they're not nearly as pretty when they're 40 plus inches but not nah, I, I don't think anything big and old's pretty anymore yeah <laughs> stripers can be pretty 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 I don't know, man. A 50-pound striper is nothing compared to, like, a young juvie. They're kind yeah, of, the color-wise. Like, the ones I catch in the back, they're, like, the 26, 28-inch yeah, bass. Like, they got the blues, the purples. Like, they have all the magnificent colors. You, you drag up, like, a 40-pound bass, it's, like, eh, all dull silver with a black stripe. And then just, like, all right, well, you don't really have anything pretty about you. You're going back. <laughs> so what time of year do you guys catch your big cows up there? Our cows uh, come up, well, they either they come up from your way or they come out of the river here starting. I mean, we start, guys here start targeting them around like May-ish. Okay. A, April, we get an April run of them up the river when they start making their way up. But yeah, starting April, May-ish. Uh, they, it, the bite really starts picking up in like middle of May up to June. Okay, cool. Yeah, you too. It's, I got to do that sometime. I always like, you know hit them pretty hard while they're here and then wait till next year but i'd love to like travel north with them one year and try to get them somewhere else come up here you know we'll find them we get them in the back sometimes but most of the time you're going to need a boat to catch up to them because they they depending where they're at but like you can find them off the beach it just takes a lot of work and a lot of time you know know it's fishing so you got to put that grind in man Mm mm-hmm I do have a friend that does that though. He starts in Jersey, hits them, then he usually goes up to Rhode Island and catches them when they're there, which is probably nuts. Uh, and then he even goes up to Maine and wow. catches them there, which is so it's probably a fun time to do that. But you gotta have the time and the <laughs> the perseverance to do yeah. it. And no responsibilities. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to swing the whole migration, but maybe one stop along the way. Right. right. Um. All right, Kirk, last question, because we're probably going to start wrapping this up here. 
uh, maybe two questions. Uh, what are you targeting next? You got anything that you're, any plans, any trips coming up? Yeah, dude. Um, pretty big one. I'm excited for it, man. I'm going to, uh, going to Alaska in October. Oh yeah. Oh. So, um, actually I'm going with Oliver that, you know, fly lord team. Yep. Uh, flying up to Fairbanks and going to be targeting grayling for a couple days. And then we're going to drive down South around Anchorage and, um, and go for steelhead and coho. Um, so I'm going to be there for nine days. So it should be pretty awesome. Yeah. I just had a friend come back. I mean, it's spring, so it's completely different, but he came back with like a hundred pounds of salmon. Really? Um, he's a real meaty guy. So like if it's out of ever, he's, he's eating it. Um, but he said it was just killer. I, he actually invited me. I just couldn't swing it this year. Um, but he's going back next year for two weeks and he wants me to go on that, but we'll see. Uh, but it sounds incredible. Um, I'm super excited. I've never been to Alaska. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Um, well, that was kind of my last question for you was, uh, if you had a chance to travel anywhere in the world, where are you going? Uh, I'm guessing Alaska is one of them. Give me, give me, give me number two. Dude, all, I keep, all expenses I'm, paid. Anywhere you want to go, where would it be? All expenses paid. Dude, I, I don't know, man. I like, I keep just really getting so interested in like Colombian peacock bass. Oh, cool. You know, and like doing that, um, like on the Orinoco River with like the native tribes and going up there and uh spending some time for giant peacocks and payara and stuff like that oh yeah um i think that would be so cool because it would be like a badass fishing experience in some like genuinely like untamed country and then the interaction with the the locals and the natives would just be so special like i mean i feel like it'd be real easy to say like the seychelles or something like that which would be really badass but it would be lacking a little bit of that like cultural just like Oh, totally going back in time you know Qua and i actually got invited on one of those yeah I was, to, I was just about to say that uh and, and they like pitched it to us i mean first of all it's really expensive it was like six seven thousand dollars to go without flights yep uh, but they they sent us a youtube video that somebody made uh i can't remember no, i'll send it to you afterwards uh and okay. it pretty much was this guy documenting the trip where they had to like literally Drag their canoes through the to go the upstream. They would get to a waterfall. They would unpack everything, carry everything in the canoe upstream, then come back and carry the boat over the waterfall. And they had to do that like five times to get to where they were going. Yeah, that's like, had, dude, that's the kind of shit I I would love that. And it, they bring they bring their own chainsaws to cut through trees know, because they don't fit not, through that. Yeah, I, I was like, oh god. I mean, it's an area where nobody has ever fished. That that's um, how you that's how you know you're going to get that twenty pound, twenty five pound peacock. Right. Yeah. yeah. Was it um Fish Columbia that reached out to you, or different? Oh, I don't know. It was one of our. It was one of our <laughs> friends that, that's going, and then he was like he, doing a hosted trip or something. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's going with a few guys, and there's a bunch of openings on there, and he, he asked yeah. if he wanted to go. So, dude, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to dabble in the hosted trip world, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to learn everything I can. Um, but I was thinking about. I I, I told Bobby Herb and just opened an outfitter somewhere in florida and then i'll just be one of his guides and then just you know we can just do hosted trips around the world 
Yeah, dude. Count me in if you need another guy. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> All right, Kirk. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure hitting a lot of stuff. I mean, redfish, striper, snakes, and blue cats, uh, as well as your food journey, which is awesome. Just a big uh, slam. Give us uh, or, or tell our listeners where people can find you uh, and where they can see your, your stories and, and uh, everything you and write. And articles and stuff, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram, as most folks are these days. And uh, my handle is Kirky Marks. So uh, K-I-R-K-Y-M-A-R-K-S. And I, um, I repost. Well, I have the little link tree thing in my bio. And, um, you know, you can find... I'll put this podcast in there when it's done and uh, you can find some fly Lords articles and, you know, like a couple like magazine uh, features and just anything I've written or like photos or stuff like that is all in there. So follow along right there on Instagram, Kirky Marks. All right. Well, I mean, Kurt, if you ever get the opportunity or the free time you make, you know, you free up, I mean, and you're in Jersey, just reach out to me, man. We'll get out. We'll, we'll catch the fish man definitely 100 bobby's a little further up in connecticut but you know if you ever make it your oh, way up to him you can you we, can uh, fish we, with him so kirk is just too busy for me this year i think that's pretty much what it is we'll we'll make it happen though well i mean it's the same thing with you bobby i asked you to fish with me and you're too busy too so what, what I, see, that's, why, that's why i understand i get it <laughs> <laughs> so it'll happen we got a lot of that drift trip with the canada goose hunting on the side dude yeah, I mean, that's coming up. You're going to be real jealous when I post a picture of me holding a fish and a goose at the same time. I'll tell you right now. Cast and blast. Cast and blasting. Yeah. Hopefully you'll be a little jealous when I hold up a nice deal in Coho. I'm going to unlike uh, <laughs> all of that and unfollow because I don't I need to see that. Well, it's been, right, it's been real fun, guys. We really appreciate you jumping on and uh, hearing your stuff. Uh, and good luck out there in alaska when you end up out there man yeah man we definitely i'm deaf i don't know about bobby but i'm gonna be waiting to watch see these updates man <laughs> i am too but... all right man awesome. well, good luck have a good evening uh thanks for jumping on again yeah thanks yep. for having me guys right. really thanks enjoyed. man have a great Thank night you. well there we have it i was always wondering what this whole uh what what do you call it? What is it? What is this article? Flavor on the fly. Flavor on the fly. I'm just like blank. I was always thinking like, is this some a recipe he just comes up on the fly, like you know, like in his head? But apparently, it kind of is though. You know, what I mean, it's a one it's a one off recipe that he comes up with either through from the past or just you know through his parents or something. So I mean, I've I've read a couple of those art the a couple of those articles already, and dude. He's got it, man. It's just like it's something like add like he just it comes out of some like ancient recipe book that no, I've never seen before. And you know me, I'm a big foodie guy, and I love to cook. Me too. I've never thought about doing snakehead Greek though. That's yeah, just that's that's a that's a reach, man. Or yeah. even even freaking uh redfish throat and grits. That's interesting. I, I, yeah. I've heard of the throats thing, but I've never heard of. I would never thought about doing it with grits. Though. Yeah, me either. I mean, actually, I really never heard of the collar before i met kirk so mm-hmm. nice redfish i catch that is small enough <laughs> that'll be uh, that'll be that'll be next year july 4th weekend yeah yeah that's right but 
Uh, Love Kirk, another down to earth kind of guy, mm-hmm. real ethical, um, and just kind of loves what he does. Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely, definitely one of those guys you want to be good friends with because as soon as he gets a good recipe, you're going to shoot it over to you and be like, yo, try this out. Yep, that's totally right. All right. Well, let's, uh, we're just going to wrap it up. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, thank you for hanging out with us for another episode uh, to, to watch Bobby drink every time that Kirk said rockfish. I don't know how many times he poured or took a sip. I've lost count myself. I mean, my, the uh, glass is empty. So the glass and the ice is empty. So uh, mission accomplished. He's, he looks a little flushed right now. So I think he's ready for a bed. Um, once again, make sure you guys keep an eye out for us on our social medias on Facebook at Tide Chasers Podcast and also on Instagram. Uh, share our, our podcast on all the, uh, the popular podcast platforms. But until then, um, we'll see you guys next time. Peace. Uh, t- peace, tight lines, everyone. You'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But... As I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.